0: Miss the show? No worries, we've got you covered. On point and on the podcast, an important Pakistani human rights fighter, a woman, dies mysteriously in Toronto. And cops say there's nothing to see here, while many around the world are calling it murder. Who's responsible for COVID-19? Not China, of course. And they're going to make sure to write a new narrative, erasing all the blame. And profits go downhill for Ontario ski resorts, blindsided by these lockdown measures and questioning why. Let's get talking.
1: What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough.
2: Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. You listening.
1: You need to go after the virus. You need to stop the chains of transmission. You need to engage with communities very deeply. Community acceptance is hugely important. You need to be coordinated. You need to be coherent. You need to look at the other sectoral impacts, the schools and security and economic. So it's essentially many of those same lessons. But the the lessons I've learned after so many uh, Ebola outbreaks in in my career are be fast, uh, have no regrets. You must be the first mover. The virus will always get you if you don't move quickly Uh, and you need to be prepared. And I, I say this, one of the great things in emergency response and anyone who's involved in emergency response will know this. If you need to be right before you move, you will never win.
0: Our elected officials are not going after the virus. They're chasing their tails. Alex Pearson with you on this uh, Tuesday, December 22nd, and uh, here we go. That was then, here we are now, and doing the very thing the WHO warned us not to do way back in March. And that guy speaking is Dr. Michael Ryan, who is one of the probably only people at the WHO who I will give credit because of his work uh, combating the Ebola virus. He was very clear back in those days that the strategy can't be to chase COVID. Get ahead of it. Don't wait for the right political timing. And of course, have all levels of government work together. But things that we've been talking about on this show, test widely, test aggressively. Don't wait for things like businesses to sell off stock or your political stakeholders to give the nod. In other words, what he was saying, what he reiterates here is do the exact opposite of everything Doug Ford just announced Monday.
1: Speed trumps perfection. And the problem in society we have at the moment is everyone is afraid of making a mistake. Everyone is afraid of the consequence of error. But the greatest error is not to move. The greatest error is to be paralyzed by the fear of failure.
0: The other mistake is making half-assed decisions that look like something's being done. But what it does is simply prolong the pain we are going through. Because this is not a lockdown. This is a non-lockdown, which is what the Ford government has decided to do. It's not gonna solve this crisis because we're not actually locking down. And no, I haven't all of a sudden changed and believe in lockdowns. I think, to- I think lockdowns are wrong. I think that's you know, to the point where you just haven't used your head and planned around this and come up with an actual plan. It's what you do when you're desperate. What I can't understand is nine months into this thing, why haven't we adopted the approach That was a raging success in Taiwan. Taiwan didn't wait. Taiwan didn't worry about offending anyone, which would have been its neighbor, China. It saw the threat. It immediately shut borders, masked its people, aggressively tested and traced people. And because they did all that, seven people died. And now they're living their lives fairly normally. So for the love of God, if we have to do this again, and it was supposed to be a one-time thing, then do it right. Because, you know, with people still out shopping, with the borders allowing anybody and their mother in and kids returning to school halfway through the 28 days, we're not locked down at all. What we are doing is committing ourselves to these never-ending destructive circle jerk strategies that lead to never-ending lockdowns that are destroying us. And the WHO also warned, the same guy also warned, lockdowns can't be a strategy. They have to be a last resort.
1: We shouldn't accept that in every country the return of cases should be seen with an immediate return of the need for uh, for lockdown restrictions at a national level. There are many things that can be done uh, between those two points and we should make every effort to do so in order to keep our social economic uh, lives open and particularly schools and other vital services.
0: We're we're no far we're no further ahead now than we were in the spring. In fact, we have gone backwards, if you can believe it. And I, you know that is why people are fed up. That's why people are broke. They are angry. They are exhausted, exhausted by the cruelty of being robbed of you know human companionship from those we love the most, but who we're now being forced to stay away from. And that's why a lot of people just won't, because delaying this you know non lockdown is like this quiet nod so that many can quietly sneak off to see family at Christmas. I wanna go home. I'm dead. I haven't seen my family in a year. I've been staring at the walls for months. I wanna go home. I haven't seen my nephews. I haven't seen my sister. I haven't seen my mother. But I'm gonna continue staring at the walls. But a lot of people will go skiing. They'll cross into other regions, maybe play a pickup game of shinny with too many players. And sure, the politicians are going to wag their finger in judgment, but who are you to judge? Because it's your lack of action that got us into this mess. And sure, there's plenty of blame to go around for those who are thumbing their nose at this. But we should not be where we are today. There's simply no excuse for it. Because those in charge had months, months. To go after the virus, months to build things like COVID field hospitals to you know to confront backlogs, months to hire in teams of people to aggressively trace the virus, months to get aggressive testing in place, months to get a system in place, making sure that those you know walking into this country were doing so safely. Those in charge have had months to take charge and prepare for the second wave. And instead, what we got is daily vacuous press conferences with catchy talking points and hand-washing tips. I know how to wash my hands. What I want to see is rapid testing. What I want to see is tracing so that we can figure out where this is coming from. And yet those in charge now keep saying, well, the vaccine is the light at the end of the tunnel. Well then they've got tunnel vision because that thing is months away. And if the strategy then is to rag the puck with, you know, these half-ass measures, we are doomed, literally doomed. That is not a strategy. Just get us to the vaccine. Just get us to the vaccine. There will not be a country left if all we're doing is locking down and crushing businesses, killing people in isolation, and not having human companionship and acting like people. People will not last. So my advice to those in charge, and I'm not blaming Doug Ford for all of this. He gets blamed for the brunt of it, but the provinces are the ones doing all the heavy lifting. But my advice to them is that over the next 20 days, you come up with an actual plan and not one that involves shutdowns. I don't want to see any more news conferences. Let's be done with the photo ops, spare us, you know, the hashtags. And for God's sakes, stop with this nonsense that we're all in this together. What we need is an actual plan to get ahead of this virus. Good to have you here with us on this Tuesday. The question, who is Karima Baloch and why does her sudden death not add up? To many, uh, she was as important a voice as Malala Yousafzai, but uh, who just didn't get the same notoriety, the same profile. I mean, she was a well-known human rights leader who took a stand against women wearing niqabs and fought against extremism. She was a key player in the Balochi, and I hope I'm saying that right, national movement, which fights for greater cultural, economic and political rights, um, including political autonomy, even for the fighting of separation from Pakistan. And that made her a target. She ended up escaping Pakistan and came to Canada in 2016 as she uh, came as a refugee and then made a home here in Toronto. And then suddenly on December 20th, just a couple of days ago, she was reported missing. And now the police have announced she's dead. And they don't believe it's murder, but given two of her family were murdered back in Pakistan, many here are questioning if the police are even asking the right questions. One of those people would be Tarek Fatah, columnist with the Toronto Sun, also author of the book, Tragic Illusion of an Islamic State. Good to have you, Tarek.
3: Oh, nice to talk to you. Thank you for having
0: me. You knew this young woman quite well. I mean, in 2016, uh, Kareem, I mean, she was named in the BBC's annual list of top 100 most influential people, and she came here as a refugee, and you had a hand in that.
3: Yes, I... Uh, I was told uh, by by friends in Balochistan that Karima, there was another young gentleman who was still here and a couple of other women, their lives were in danger and if I could do something to help them out. So at that time, I approached Chris Alexander, who I didn't even know, and who had been Canada's ambassador in uh, Kabul. So he knew the whole situation and I said... These are young people who who will die if we don't intervene, and this is one of those good acts uh, that are done that nobody knows about and chris Alexander got involved and uh two, three of them came to Canada, and among them, uh Karima was the most prominent, and I say that because she, as a woman, in a society where I don't recall in the last 50 years of my association with the the word actually is balochistan mm. like um, rich you know that's uh, so it's balochistan and she came out as an ordinary person and uh, became head of the students uh, wing uh, in in that party and Uh, Very few people know. But Balochistan was an independent country that was occupied by Pakistan during the Cold War. And these young people and many of the elders, there are people in the hills over there fighting. But these are political workers. And she arrived here. And she tended to be clear-cut, straightforward, uh, expose the Pakistani military officers who increasingly are living in Canada. Uh, and have formed their own associations, uh, and uh, n- no one in the media seems to be worried about it. And they live here, and carry on their activities. And she, in one of her last speeches, had exposed this saying that uh, there is a sort of a a, a group called the, uh, the Muslim Club inside Parliament. Uh, who introduced the M one hundred three? And she spoke about how asking, uh, allowing Pakistan military officers to settle in in Canada is like asking her to go back and live with them because these people uh, have blood on their hands. You know, in a couple of genocides, one being in Bangladesh, where close to uh, two million people died. So she was uh, torn th- in the side of these. Uh, Pakistani agents who, by the way, are uh, spread all over uh, Canada. They are, they are in, uh, not just in the police forces. Sometimes uh, I've seen people, the Pakistani intelligence, at prominent places. This scares the wits out of us because. Uh, you know, she mm-hmm. can't trust, uh, get safety here, where will you get? And she, she had been raising this. And for anyone to say that she just walked over on a cold evening to uh, 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 Central Island and just dropped herself in the uh, waters, none of us believe that because she didn't come if she had to end her life or had no aspirations of living, she wouldn't have come all the way to Canada or right. being a public figure. Uh,
2: and, she,
0: and she had said, you know, sh- she knew she was safe and had nothing to hide from, uh, you know, from anyone in Canada. But, but obviously speaking out made her a target. And then I read absolutely. today that the PTI, the current governing party of Pakistan, has actually claimed responsibility.
3: Well, uh, they they, they have. uh, I I didn't read that, but I don't think they would take responsibility. They are trying to play games by. uh, This is the second time a Baloch activist has been drowned. The first one was in Sweden. And uh, if you recall, and uh, you're forgiven if you don't, but just a couple of weeks ago, Uh, A man and a woman were found dead in uh, Milton home. And all the news item about that was dropped. There were Pakistani police officers in the Halton force that made sure that even the community papers did not have a story of that. Now, that man was a a lieutenant uh, who was uh, from the Pakistan Navy. And uh, it's all happening because nobody... Uh, in a in a bizarre way, nobody seems to be worried about anything. So you could have between the Khalistanis and the Islamists, you could have uh, our entire structure compromised. And uh, the uh, the killing of uh, uh, Karima Baloch uh, is a very personal loss to me because she was like my daughter. You know, she had no family member here, and uh, she got married, um, and was just uh, giving examinations to enter uh, the UFT. She had picked up English. She had learned everything. She had become stable, and um, you know, never held back exposing the truth. And she spoke to large audiences. And uh, in a patriarchal society, people say, "Whoa, well, what the hell is she doing over here?" And yeah, so, yeah. So do you have I, in- I don't believe she committed suicide, no.
0: No, but then the question becomes, will the Toronto police mm-hmm. um, investigate this further? It doesn't sound like they feel there's anything else to see, and does that then require the RCMP or CSIS to get involved?
3: No, they won't even know who Karima Baloch is. I'm, I'm being very frank. Uh, they don't, you know, there have been death threats to me. Uh, while I was in hospital, And I was being interviewed by the officers who were doing a decent job till another gentleman came and he said, I'm from Toronto in police intelligence, sent the officers home. He turned out to be a Pakistani. You think I'm going to talk to someone who's a Pakistani and tell him what's happening? Are there other times that people have threatened to pull a gun on me and I've been to the cops and... uh, You can talk to the Mm. wonderful people, but then I find out that the top guy at that division is someone who who considers me to be the problem. So uh, this is happening, and Canadians are oblivious of uh, this. They think this is multiculturalism or whatever they're doing. So whether you're Chinese or Khalistani or Pakistani, anyone wishing to destroy this country is uh, has opened doors to them. It uh, caters to white guilt. It caters to this bizarre notion of disrespecting what our values are. And uh, imagine that thirty, twenty, a girl in the twenties, woman comes here, survives three, four years, and then disappears. This this is a huge tragedy. And she'll be forgotten. Nobody will know. Everyone will cash in back in Pakistan. They'll sing songs about her. But, but some, we don't have any access to anyone to say, for goodness sake, did you talk to people involved? She's not just some housewife you know, that mm-hmm. simply slipped and fell in a pond. No, she was a political activist, known the world over. And for the Toronto police to just, you know, the way they said, oh, she has been located. That is what the police treated located dead or alive, didn't even matter for them.
0: Well, we will uh, keep a spotlight on it because um, this is making very big headlines, certainly all over the world. And if they're talking about it there, then that means we should be and must be talking about who she is and what she stood for here. Tarek, I I really appreciate your insight into this. I I know you do it at great risk. And I'm sorry for your loss. No, she's
3: okay. She'll be alive forever. Don't worry.
0: Tarek, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Tarek. Tarek Fatah joining us here. So yeah, it's making headlines internationally all over the world. It's just in Canada that no one seems to blink an eye. We will. All right. So who is to blame for COVID-19? Not China. And they're making and taking extreme measures to make sure that becomes the new narrative. Uh, And it was interesting because the New York Times laid out thousands of leaked documents uh, over the weekend that show how China's army of paid Internet trolls have been censoring the severity of the virus within its own country. Uh, making sure things like those warnings from the now late Dr. Lee, the man who warned the world about this virus and then suddenly died, they made sure all of his messaging was gone, and then they made sure to scrub news sites of negative stories, social media platforms of negative stories, you know, activate fake online trolls to flood out information, and then hire hundreds of thousands of people in China whose sole job is to blast out positive propaganda with the goal that, of course, it becomes the new narrative. Not just in China, but of course around the world. Jonathan Bercher Miller is the lead on a project at the McDonald Laurier Institute that focuses on the Indo-Pacific region. He joins us now. Good to have you.
4: Uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Um Xi Jinping, the president of China, you know, he created this cyberspace administration back in 2014, and the idea was to centralize the management of internet censorship and propaganda um, and other aspects of digital policy. He sure has um, created what you would say is a monster, and it's uh, working overtime these days.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, the Communist Party, especially under Xi Jinping, has realized that. Um, while the traditional threats to its sort of domestic control, you know, may have been in this sort of non-digital realm, I think that they've realized, and I think that this is something they've invested on uh, over the past 5, 10, 15 years, is that most of these threats will come from the digital cyber domain. And this is, I think, where you see this happening much, you know, the most clearly with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, this is just, a, it's in many ways, not overly surprising. I mean, I think this is the China kind of trying to control the narrative. We see this in Hong Kong and other examples. But I think that uh, the documents, um, which have been released by the New York Times, just show the extent that China will take, uh, you know, whether it's through Internet trolls. Uh, controlling the narrative is everything to regime control. And I think this is an example uh, that shows that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think to experts like you who have been kind of warning of this uh, for some time, it seems the rest of the the planet is naive to it. Certainly, I think the government of the day here. I mean, but they have been very successful in erasing huge parts of the narrative that this, you know, virus uh, came from Wuhan, um, spread that China lied. I mean, they have successfully, maybe to themselves think that they have changed the narrative. And it's up to us to make sure that that, that doesn't, you know, hold or or set foot or or take hold?
4: Yeah, well, I think there's two troubling elements, and I think you just hit on one of them uh, that affects the international community. So there's one, of course, the domestic narrative, uh, which is uh, sold uh, for their own kind of regime control, you know, trying to kind of uh, cut off information in Hubei province where this started and, and more broadly in China, but I think that that uh, starts impacting things internationally when that narrative also is sold uh, uh, you know across China's borders and I think that's what happened with this pandemic was that because China was controlling the narrative in its own country, it also wasn't providing factual information to the international community um, and then then magnifying this was the World Health Organization which sort of didn't take the extra steps to verify of this information so we just had very poor information and a lot of that was uh, due to china's manipulation of this narrative
0: yeah and us allowing it albeit there has been a sudden tone change with this current government. They kind of seem to be waking up to the threat, um, albeit I'm not sure how sincere it is. But over the weekend, Defense Minister Harjit Sajan, you know, describes China as unpredictable and refusing to play by the rules and is a significant concern, um, you know, with its allies. Well, breaking news, like, where's he been?
4: Yeah, you know, I think this is the one thing, you know, I would uh, say it's, great that the government is finally starting to look at this, but I'd also agree with you. And I think it's, you know, this is not a new challenge. And I think where I would disagree with some of their perspectives is that uh, I think they're consistently saying this is not the China of, of five years ago mm-hmm. or, or a couple of years ago. Uh, I think that's, China's actually been pretty consistent and in many ways actually pretty predictable. Uh, they, um, you know, they're unapologetically pushing their own interests. And a lot of those are very much adversarial to Canada and a lot of other like-minded democracies. So this is something that's been happening for some time and I think many of China's near neighbors uh, be it uh, Japan or those in Southeast Asia have been uh, have been facing these challenges for for years and have been kind of you know yelling at the mountaintops to countries like Canada you know beware of some of the challenges of China and I think we've uh, you know we've basically sort of willfully ignored those so you know, that's the point I would really disagree with. Is is that you know this is a new challenge, and because of the Michaels being detained, mm-hmm. that, that this is a, a new China. I, I fundamentally think it's the same China. I think we just weren't um, woke up to this uh, these challenges.
0: Right. I I mean, look, I I was pleasantly surprised to see that the the sale of a mining company in the Arctic, a a company named Shandong Gold Mining, this is a Chinese company, was set to take over this mining company in a very important part of the Arctic. And I was pleasantly surprised to see that that sale has been stopped because I guess someone in government finally realized this is actually a, a security threat to our national interests.
4: Yeah, I thought that was a good decision uh, at TMAC Resources. Uh, you know, they did shun the Shandong, uh, Shandong uh, mining company for national security purposes. I guess my point, my one of my worries for that is that why did it take so long? I mean, I think this is clearly a part of our critical infrastructure and a critical area too. I mean, one thing that's interesting to think about the Arctic is that China, um, if you look at a map, is nowhere near the Arctic. I mean, you do yeah. have to be a geography major to know that. Uh, but they are one of the only states, and I, th- I think they're actually the only state that uh, calls itself a near-Arctic state, which is just a term that they've essentially invent- invented. Um, they're, they're either Arctic states and non-Arctic states, and I think China clearly has its eyes on the Arctic region. They've created their own sort of what they call as a white paper or a policy a map of how they see themselves in the Arctic. So, yeah, I think we need to be very wary about their intentions in that region and, and the idea of them sort of taking over a uh, part of Canadian critical infrastructure in that region doesn't make sense for our national security.
0: So where do you see this moving forward? I mean, obviously, with the two Michaels still incarcerated, I, I you know, I get the sense that the, the prime minister thinks that there may be some kind of deal in the works to get them released. Um, but again, um, the approach to China, you know, being nice and, and kind of kowtowing to, to their demands, it hasn't worked. And unless we see, I think, a complete change in tone, anything changes in the future other than China just becoming more emboldened and, and a bigger threat.
4: Yeah, I think we need to move away from the tactical and then more towards the strategic. And I think that, again, takes away some of the naivety and and, and gives us some realism. And I think when we strategically look at China, and it's not to say, you know, we shut the doors and and don't engage with the Chinese, don't do any business with them. I mean, it's in our interest, of course, to have some opportunities, economic opportunities with the Chinese. But what we've really failed to do is do that with our eyes wide open. And I think, with regard to some of the the issues that are now on the front burner, um the two michaels, the issue of five uh, g next generation networks, I think those are those are again they're important elements, but they're only tactical parts of the bigger strategic challenge with China. So I think we would be amiss if, for example, if something were to happen where there was a bargain struck and the Michaels were able to return. That does nothing, I think, uh, as as much as it's good news, it does nothing to the larger strategic puzzle that we have with China. So I think that we have to think about this as a long-term effort and one that we will not do alone. I mean, this is something we have to work with other countries, um, like-minded democracies in Europe, Asia, United States, elsewhere. Uh, so that's the lens I think we need to look at this through.
0: Yeah, the question is, will that lens uh, take place in 2021? I sure hope so. Jonathan, I appreciate your insight into this. Thank you.
4: Thanks so much.
0: Have a great holiday.
4: Yeah, you too. Okay, All bye right.
0: bye. Jonathan Berkshire Miller joining us here. All righty, there you go. There you go. There's the latest one brings us as far as foreign policy decisions and China. Time to take the blinkers off. Thanks to these lockdown measures, ski hills are uh, just one of the latest casualties. And, you know, for ski resorts, really, I think the Christmas break is what kicks off the real ski season. And it's a crucial time for their bottom line and the bottom line of a lot of um, businesses in the local community. And most, you know, most of these places had already put in safety protocols to prepare for it. And I wonder, like, how much more socially distanced can you be than on a hill skiing by yourself? It's amazing. You don't have to talk to anybody. But Nonetheless, we can't have fun things. Jim Hanlon is chief operating officer of the Calabogie Peaks Resort in Calabogie. He joins us now. Good to have you, sir. Good,
2: okay, Alex. How are you?
0: Well, I'm probably a bit better than you guys. I mean, this is a real tough blow. Were you expecting this or was this a total blindside?
2: This was a total blindside Alex. Uh, this was something that uh, at one point we were on the list as an outdoor activity and uh, when the announcement was made yesterday for some reason, we then all of a sudden showed up on the hit list to not be able to operate our business this winter.
0: And what was the reasoning? I mean, I, I've been we've been looking into going skiing and, and we knew that we would have to book ahead. Um, there'd be less passes. We knew that we'd have to eat lunch and stuff like that in the car. We knew that there were a lot of um, provisions and, and, and changes put into place, but what was the rationale?
2: You know what? That's The sad part is is there was no rationale. There was no, uh, no support or any indication um, why we all of a sudden got put on that list. Uh, it, it makes no sense to any of the resorts here in Ontario. And, and in fact, the disappointment is all other resorts across Canada are open. Including our, you know, our, our competition in in Quebec, um, it's just it's just it's crazy.
0: And so, I, I don't know if Lisa McLeod. I mean, you'd be probably part of the tourism industry, which has been so brutally hit this year um, to the point of devastation. Um, is there anything that you guys have been able to get access as far as information or pushing back on this? Because how can how can it be that it's okay for me to skate um, on the pond at the ski resort, but I can't go up the hill to ski?
2: No, I could toboggan too, which is crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, Lisa, I know she has her hands full. And, um, in fact, tomorrow we'll be lobbying with Lisa again just to see if there's anything we can do. I mean, we're in the Ottawa region and, you know, sat green for this whole colour thing and and has, you know, gold stars trying to make sure that we follow these protocols. And and somehow, you know, the east of Ontario got, got tied into... You know, unfortunately, red zones, but even in red zones, I mean ski hills. There, there's there's kilometers of trails, there's hundreds of yeah. acres that you're skiing on. Uh, it makes no sense whatsoever.
0: So, is that does that also include um, cross country skiing?
2: Yeah, I mean you can go out and cross country ski. You can play in the parks. You, you can do all kinds of things, but uh, but you can't go to a ski hill that that has set itself up to to work within a you know the COVID protocols that have been laid out for us uh, since last March.
0: That is just nuts. And so when you look at, I mean, look, you're almost like farmers. You guys rely on Mother Nature to, to give a perfect season. It has to be cold and you need snow and you can only make snow if it's cold enough. And so you guys already have Mother Nature that you're beating you know, up against every year. Now you got this. How damaging is 28 days, assuming it is only 28 days to the bottom line?
2: Yeah, I mean, for most smaller hills, uh, which are probably 80% of the hills in Ontario, this, you know, the Christmas holidays is uh, one-third of the revenues, um, you know, for the small hills. So it is it is it is devastating period. It, it, there's no recovery to it. Um, that money will go someplace else, um, and it certainly won't, you know, support the, you know, the employment programs that, that come with running these operations seasonally, um, and it's certainly, you know, not in a you know, positive for us trying to keep our doors open.
0: And I know a lot of people will say, well, it's not real safe to go into, you know, one of those lifts that you shut the door and you're kind of crammed in there. But, you know, most Ontario resorts have a chairlift, which you can easily just put one uh, person on. Or if it's a, a, a family, you can put two people together that are already in the same bubble. So we don't really have that. We have T-bars and, and a lift that could easily be separated. So there are lots of precautions that could go in place to keep this safe, Correct.
2: Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. There's 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 no gondolas in the Ontario region that needs to put anybody inside in a closed casement. So, you know, we also put protocols even on the lists and t-bars that you know face masks are, are worn. I mean, they're wearing gloves and suits and, and and you know buffs and goggles and, I mean, they're in hazmat suits while they're outside. And and you know, we've asked all our guests to to mask up even when they're walking around. Um, we've asked them to be masked up when they're inside. It's 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 you know we've we've made every you know possible precautionary step to ensure that the uh, clients that are here enjoying the uh, the mountain skiing um, to be safe and sadly uh, that that didn't uh, meet the uh, the marks of our provincial government.
0: I mean the sad reality the, ir- the irony here is that uh, any skier skiers have been prepared for COVID for a long time because they do they wear the face shield you wear like the neck warmer you pretty much your whole face is covered and and and. And I don't, I, I do not understand this. I certainly hope um, that it can be reversed. But even um, if it is reversed, um, how many people are how how tough will it be to get on the slopes if you were to be able to open?
2: Yeah, and that's you know it's just if if we don't get this reversed, if we don't get people out to to enjoy the winter, then it will be just catastrophic to the industry. Um, I mean, the just with insurances and hydro and the cost of running. All of these things still are in play. Um, we can't stop those things. Um, yeah. So, you know, our, our layout front end is, is super heavy. And if we don't yeah. have, you know, these, these key, key seasons, you know, Christmas and New Year's being one of them, one of the major ones, there is no recovery. It, it's now you're in complete survival.
0: Jim, uh, my heart aches for you and the rest uh, being hurt so needlessly by this. And I certainly hope we can get some uh, common sense uh, prevailing on this one because this one makes no sense to me. I'll uh, keep my eye on that and wish you the very, very best.
2: Alex, thank you very much. And for all your listeners, uh, thank you. And if uh, this gets reversed, please come out and support your local ski
0: golf. 100% thank you. That is Jim Henlon with uh, Calabogie uh, Peaks Resort. uh, This one's stupid. You guys got to reverse this one. You can cross-country ski. You can toboggan, you can ice skate, you can't downhill ski. It makes absolutely zero sense. And this is one of those things where they are needlessly killing an, an industry. And the one kind of family activity people can do it makes no sense. But again, nothing about these shutdowns does. So I'm sorry. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.